Let's, let's begin today by praying one of the psalms um, appointed actually for yesterday in our church schedule, Psalm 77, which is on page 812 of your hymnal. Page 812. Psalm 77. Let's say this responsively, pray it to God together. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused and my spirit grew faint. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart used and my spirit Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the world. Your lightning lit up the world. The Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen. Father, indeed, this day we remember your faithfulness. We remember our story, the story that we've been engrafted into, Father, um, through our participation in the life of Jesus, the story that begins with creation and continues um, all throughout um, the history of the human race as you have been faithful, as you have delivered your people and protected them, as you have protected your seed again and again until the time was full and your son was born into the world. And salvation was declared to all people through him. Um, Father, we are thankful this day that we are um, the inheritors of a story um, that is far bigger and richer and deeper than the story of our own lives. And in fact, our lives only make sense within that greater story of your faithfulness. And Father, as we um, take, take time now um, to study your law, your word, especially the sixth commandment, I pray that you would grant us wisdom as we consider these things together, that your spirit would be present with us and would set this time apart for your purpose as we pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you today. Um, 
Let's see, Kendra and Scott, will y'all help me pass out handouts and any handouts that are left over, if you'll just put them like on the, on the sound booth there, that way people can grab them if they come in, that'd be great. Um, well, I've been away from adult Sunday school these past um, three weeks. I've been helping out in the, in the middle school and high school class, which has been wonderful. Um, but I've been able to listen to um, the recordings um, from the third, fourth, and fifth commandments um, that were taught by um, Pastor Patrick and elders Lauren Clark and uh, Mike Venzel. And I just want to say how grateful I am. Um, I thought those lessons were just so well done, and I'm really appreciative of um, the way in which I get to be a participant in uh, the teaching of our church. And it's not just on me, um, but there are others um, who are so gifted and competent and, um, and full of wisdom um, to help instruct as well. And so I'm really grateful for that. That's a, that's a gift to me as a pastor. So thank you, Lauren and Mike and Patrick for your um, teaching the last several weeks. Um, as we now move into the sixth commandment this morning, I wanted to start with um, just a little bit of thoughtfulness about what it is that we're doing here. Why are we studying um, the Ten Commandments um, this fall? And I want to say, and I think this has been borne out in the, the um, lessons that you've heard so far, and I, I, especially as we move sort of into the second table of the law and really think about what it means to love our neighbor, um, I really want to, you know, think about th this can often lead to sort of like um, abstract discussions about Christian ethics, right? Like under what circumstances, um, you know, you know, is self-defense appropriate or, or is capital punishment okay? Or, um, you know, what do we think about um, medical treatment for um, the dying? And, and, you know, all these kinds of questions. We could, we could go into all those things and spend a great deal of time um, thinking about all those ethical issues, because I do think that the, the scriptures and the church um, have things to say about them. But my purpose is, is not really for us to be doing all of that, so to speak, having these just sort of abstract discussions about Christian ethics. Um, and, and I'm also not trying to just sort of make us vaguely feel convicted about our sin. Um, you know, like, that's one effect that studying the law can have, especially when you read the larger catechism um, and, and the list of things that each of these commandments requires or prohibits. It, hopefully, by this point, you found a few things where a few places where your life is, is not completely congruent with those things, right? Um, hopefully, you have the self-awareness um, to, um, to see that in the first five commandments so far, places where you're falling short. Um, but but I'm also not wanting us to do this class just so we have this sort of vague uncomfortableness with you know, ourselves or maybe feel bad a few, about a few things. Uh, no, what we're trying to do as we study the law of God is that we're, we're seeking to grow in the practice of holiness. We're trying to become more holy, just to be clear. Like that's what we're trying to do primarily, um, centrally. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith has this wonderful chapter on sanctification and I love the first paragraph. It, it, it talks about the role of holiness in the life of a Christian, which I think is unfortunately sometimes not emphasized enough um, that you, friend, um, God actually does have a plan for your life. I can tell you that very confidently. And his plan for your life is that you would be made holy unto the image of your Lord Jesus. Um, that is his plan for your life, um, whatever years you have remaining. Um, that is the thing that you can be confident that God intends for you. Um, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith says about sanctification, they who are once effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, so they've experienced conversion, 
are then further sanctified, further made holy, um, really and personally. And how does this happen? It happens, the Westminster um, Confession says, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them. In other words, through your union with Christ is the way in which you become holy um, through the means of grace that he gives you through abiding in him. And what is the effect of this? The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And so I, I just really want to just say like that is the point of what we're doing here. We're, we believe in progressive sanctification. We believe that um, you ought as a Christian person to becoming, be becoming more holy um, over the, the weeks and months and years and decades of your life. And, and hopefully um, you can look back on your life and see how that is happening. And then that's the purpose of what we're doing is we're, we're seeking to grow in true holiness um, as um, the confession says, because without true holiness, no man will see the Lord. And so we want to be those who will see the Lord, those who will be pure in heart, um, as our Lord Jesus says. Um, and, and how do we do this? The confession says, talks about repentance. And repentance, I think, is really the aim of a class like this. Like, hopefully, you're not just learning things about the law, but you are practicing repentance in, repart in, in response to God's law. Um, um, and, and repentance has a very interesting um, sort of definition in, in 15, in, in paragraph 5 of chapter 15 in the Confession. It says, men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. I, lo I love that, right? Um, what you're called to, friends, is not just sort of a, a general repentance every week, um, turning away every day, turning away from, you know, sin in some general way. You are called to that, but specifically you're called to repent of your particular sins. And what this paragraph um, or the sentence assumes is that, that, that your sins will be particular to you, that there will be a difference between the ways in which you um, habitually sin or you are tempted to sin um, than your neighbor or your spouse or your friend or whoever it might be. Um, that you have your own personal story. Um, and, and so there are going to be particular sins um, that you commit. And ye, what is part of growing in true holiness for you is going to be to repent of those sins particularly, um, which, which is hard, right? It's easier to repent of other people's sins, right? <laughs> it's easier to repent of things that, um, you know, that, that seem easy to give up. Um, uh, but that's not what you're called to specifically. You're called specifically to give up um, the things that you do that are violations of God's law, either by um, omission or commission, um, uh, things you fail to do or things that you do that you shouldn't. Um, those are the things that you are meant to repent of particularly, which, which raises the question, how do you, how do, you do this? Um, the Shorter Catechism answers, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. I love that clarity of that catechism question, the way it talks about repentance. Notice where it starts. It starts with a sinner having a true sense of his sin, which I think is a really fascinating thing. Um, one of the things that you are going to need to do 
if you are going to grow in holiness, if you are going to repent of your particular sins particularly, is you are going to have to be curious about yourself. You're going to have to be reflective. You're going to have to think about what are the things that are particular to me? What is a true sense of my sin? Um, what actually um, is going on in my heart and my life? Um, th- so the confession here, um, even though it was written you know, 400 years ago, is, is inviting you to be self-reflective. I think it's important to say that. Um, it's, it's inviting you to be thoughtful about your own heart. <clears throat> um, we, have to, we have to have a true sense of our sin in order to repent of our actual sins, um, not sins that we're not committing or things that are not that big of a deal. We have to properly understand ourselves is what I mean. And of course, this is part of what Calvin describes when he says that all true wisdom um, consists of knowledge of God and knowledge of yourself. And it's, it's impossible to tell um, to separate these two from one another, that they're inseparably connected to one another. Knowledge of yourself and knowledge of God are, are in some ways dependent upon one another. So what does this require? It requires a knowledge of God's law, and that's why we're doing this. And we have to have a standard to compare our hearts to and our lives to and our, our habits to, our actions to. And that standard is the law of God, and that's where we're spending um, three months or so walking through a summary of God's law. But we also need a knowledge of ourselves, and we need to ask the Spirit to help us with this, um, to give us insight into our own hearts and our own lives, to have that kind of self-reflective posture. Um, Hopefully, friends, you can name, um, even write out, potentially, um, some of your particular sins, um, some of the ways that you truly do sin. Hopefully, you have an answer to that question, and I would encourage you to continue to, to think about that and to reflect on that and consider what are my particular sins that I might repent of them particularly. And, and, and I would say you need not only the law of God and your own sort of faculties and, and um, intentions, you very likely need someone else to help you with this, um, which is something worth thinking about. Um, and, and the scripture's full of examples of this, right? You think about, of course, David, it's one of the primary examples. David thought he was fine after um, killing Uriah and marrying his dead wife. I mean, sorry, marrying his wife after his death. Um, um, you know, David just sort of was rolling along, and it took someone else, right? It took Nathan appearing and sent by God to confront him with that, that he might see himself um, clearly um, mirrored in someone else. And I think that, you know, this is why the scriptures talks about confessing your sins one to another. Um, it's not only so that um, others can assure you of the forgiveness of Jesus um, and God's love for you, but so that others can dialogue with you about your sin and about why it is that you sin in this way. What does it mean to repent of it particularly? Um, and I, I do think this is very true. Um, I would say, I've written here this summary, you can be sure that someone is beginning to take their own particular sins seriously when they begin to articulate and talk to someone else about those sins. I think this, uh, just as I've watched people grow or not grow spiritually um, in my ministry, I think this is a really big deal. Um, You know that someone is beginning to become serious about their sins when they start to talk about them to someone else, when it's not just this internal monologue or this dialogue between just simply them and God, um, when they actually begin to involve another human being in that conversation about their own particular sins. Um, that is often when, and I, I don't 
fully, you know, I, I'm not sure I can fully describe why this is exactly. I think it has something has to do with the way in which we're milked for community and, you know, the Trinitarian nature of God and all these sorts of things. But I would just say, just from my observation and my own life as well, right, my own personal experience um, of, with sin and repentance, as well as observation of that pattern in other people's lives, that that very often you know someone is getting serious about their sin when they're beginning to talk about it with someone else. Um, that is a sign that they really want to put these things off and to change and to understand themselves and to acknowledge. And I think part of it is that you're acknowledging when you do that, that, that you don't have the capacity in yourself to do this, right? That you need help. Um, it's, a, it's a very humble thing to talk to someone else about um, patterns of sin in your life. And I, I think that's part of why God uses it to transform us and set us free. Um, so you can be sure that someone is beginning to take their own sins seriously when they begin to articulate and talk to someone else about those sins, especially a person who is given the freedom to speak honestly about both the sin they see in you and the grace and comfort of the love of God. Um, and, and so there's, there's often some sense of like you're opening yourself to someone else in a, in a, in a real way. A parent, a spouse, a friend, a counselor, a pastor, um, all these kinds of people can be helpful to you in this exploration of yourself. It is very unlikely, and I would say even probably, probably impossible, that you possess in and of yourself the capacity to know, understand, confess, and repent of your sin without outside help. You probably need someone else to help you do it. Any thoughts about that before we jump into the Sixth Commandment specifically? Just encourage you to think about it. Think about that. Think about this. Um, what does it mean for you to not just listen to these lectures intellectually and learn some things, but what does it mean for you to apply them to your lives? And I think what I'm describing is a way to do that, a way to apply the law of God to your life. All right, so let's talk about the sixth commandment. We have a lot to cover here, but I think it's important and I want to get through it. Um, so I'm going to try to move quickly here. So the sixth commandment, it is given, of course, in the, the, the law, um, I said Exodus 5 there for some reasons, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, um, you shall not murder um, is the command. Um, and of course, if you've been paying attention, this is much shorter um, than any of the commands that preceded it. And, and it sets a pattern for the next, um, you know, four commandments at least, or next three commandments. So that the 10th commandment's a little bit longer. Um, but you shall not murder is the command. Um, the Hebrew, the footnote in the Hebrews in the ESV says the Hebrew word also covers human death through carelessness or negligence. A more literal translation might be um, you shall not slay another man um, without, you know, some sort of mitigating circumstance, right? Um, um, so it's, it's not just murder in the sense of like, you know, cold-blooded murder. It also covers things like manslaughter, we, what we would refer to as manslaughter today, that kind of thing. Um, what are the duties required in the Sixth Commandment? Let's just read through these catechism questions, and um, I think they'll help us frame. So you just see that command, you shall not murder. Of course, it's easy to be like, well, that's when I can check off, right? Um, uh, most of us, I think, um, probably all of us have not, and, and I'm not, I don't want to joke about this because um, this can be complicated. Um, but I think I know all of you well enough to know that none of us have murdered anyone. Um, um, and that's a good thing. Uh, we should give thanks for that. But of course, that's only the, the tip of the iceberg in terms of what the sixth commandment actually requires and prohibits. 
Um, so the Catechism says, the duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors and to preserve the life of ourselves and others. And that, some of that has to do with scientific research, careful study, you know, this is advocating for things like, you know, researching cancer um, and trying to find a cure for it, those kinds of things. Um, by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations and practices, which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. That's pretty comprehensive. By just defense, therefore, thereof against violence. So notice that the Catechism is arguing that there, the Sixth Commandment actually requires the protection of life, um, the protection of life against violence. Uh, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, physic, medicine, sleep, labor, and recreations. So living a, a, a healthy life is a part of keeping the sixth commandment. By charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild, courteous speeches and behavior. Um, I know that some of, there was some discussion last week about you know, how we speak um, and it's interesting to see that the Sixth Commandment um, also addresses our speech, right? Um, that we should avoid um, violent, um, aggressive forms of speech um, towards others. That's part of what the Sixth Commandment requires. Forbearance. I think this is really fascinating. We're going to talk some about this dynamic. Forbearance. Forbearance just means patience, right? Um, being merciful to others. Um, not lashing against them um, when they hurt us. Um, forbearing um, with their, their sin against us. Readiness to be reconciled. I think that's a really fascinating thing to think about in context of the, the sixth commandment. Um, because what often is the cause of violence, right? It's when others hurt us, right? Some, usually violence happens in the context of, of some kind of relationship gone bad where people are going back and forth against each other and things are escalating, right? Um, and this, and and what the, and sometimes that actually does lead to murder, literal murder, right? Um, or it can lead to things that are just as bad as murder, um, according to the the commandment. Um, and and what so what what the the writers of the catechism are saying is that part of what the sixth commandment requires is avoiding that terrible spiral, right? Being ready to be reconciled, which is the way you get out of that kind of death spiral. Um, with someone else. Um, you reconcile to them instead of taking vengeance on them. Patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, right? Um, Jesus had a few things to say about this, right? Right? If someone hits you, strikes you on the cheek, uh, what do you do? You turn the other cheek to them. Um, you forbear, you bear um, injuries that others do to you, um, which is really important for us to think about. And requiting good for evil, right? You return um, when others treat you with evilness, um, you treat them well. You treat them with good. Um, and that's, of course, something Jesus talks about and is affirmed also by the Apostle Paul. Um, it's also in the, New, the Old Testament, for that matter. Um, comforting and succoring the distressed, so caring for those in need, and protecting and defending the innocent. All of these things are part of what the Sixth Commandment requires the protection of life, the avoidance of violence, um, the forbearance, forgiveness of your enemies, all these things.
Any thoughts about that? Okay, what are the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment? The sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves. So suicide is prohibited um, or any other kind of destruction we might do physically to our bodies um, is prohibited by the sixth commandment. Or of others, right, inflicting harm on others, um, especially taking their life, but of course, as we'll see, this includes other forms of violence against others. Except in case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. So there are the three exceptions, quote unquote, that we might say exist for someone to take the life of another person and still be faithful to the sixth commandment. Public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. Okay, so that's talking about capital punishment, war, right, combat, just war, um, a just war, so a lawful, not just any war, but a war that's lawful in the eyes of God, or necessary defense. So your own life or the life of someone else um, who is innocent um, is being threatened in a severe way. In those cases, it is permissible um, to take the life of another. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life. Um, so this, of course, um, deals with questions like euthanasia um, and how we treat um, the terminally ill, those kinds of things. I think our catechism and this both speak um, to those, those questions. Um, sorry, I got thrown off there. Um, and so, so that, that sort of covers more explicit taking of human life that is forbidden. Now we move into more of the heart um, behind um, violence. So also prohibited are sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions. And I'm gonna spend some time in a little bit talking about anger. I think anger is probably for most of us the number one way that we are tempted to violate um, the sixth commandment. Um, and it's something we need to talk about um, because anger, um, as our Lord Jesus teaches, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, and as the Catechism describes here, is a way in which we murder others, that we commit the sin of murder towards others. It is a violent act, and we need to think about how we do that and what, how we can repent of that. Um, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreation, so having an unbalanced relationship to those things, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, so any kind of physical altercation that is violent, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of life of any. Those are the things prohibited in the Sixth Commandment. Any questions about that? Yes, sir, Donovan. Yes, sir. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, 
So Donovan is asking, what about abortion? Abortion seems clearly to be a, a violation of the Sixth Commandment, but many of the, sometimes at least, the rationale given for why women pursue abortion is because they um, feel like they can't afford or can't take care of um, this child that, that they're carrying, and what should the church's response be? And I think clearly even the Sixth Commandment teaches when it talks about protecting and defending um, the innocent, or um, where does it talk about succoring um, somewhere in yeah, comforting to suckering the distress. There you go. Thank you, Donna. Um, right before. Um, so I think both of those statements speak to the dynamic that you're describing, Donovan, which means that, that the church ought to, if there are situations where um, poverty or um, lack is causing someone to want to um, put to death their unborn child, then the church should be willing um, to take on um, that responsibility, absolutely. Um, and I think that's something we ought to consider um, very carefully. Um, and certainly the, uh, the, 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 the pregnancy center, so to speak, um, that we um, support um, in Grapevine has that kind of mentality in terms of, you know, wanting to provide, not just prevent women from getting abortions, but um, providing holistic care for them. And I think this is something I would certainly love to see our church grow in, um, in terms of what does it look like for us to partner with ministries like that or to, to be with women who are in those situations. And, and certainly that starts in our own church, coming alongside the families who are, who are adding children to their number, um, which comes with all sorts of sacrifices financially and physically and all sorts of ways. Um, but it should be something that expands out of just our congregation into the communion community. And, and I know you know this, but this was, of course, one of the markers of the early church, right, was the way in which they um, literally protected and saved the lives of, of children who were being abandoned and exposed um, to die and, um, and were brought in. That's a beautiful picture of the gospel and, and our calling as Christians. Yeah. Yes, Donna? That's great. Start using the larger catechism in your classes. You should. I would commend it to you. Yeah, Kim. I'm being serious. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's not surprising given the ways in which our culture has failing to do this often in the cases of um, unborn children that 
um, that it would also begin to become in, um, less committed to doing it for the elderly, um, who often are also seen as being burdens um, rather than... Um, right, right. It will be phrased under this idea of, of mercy and kindness and those kinds of things. But yeah, I came obviously speaking from our own experience and commending to us just really thinking carefully about um, how are we going to care for loved ones, what is the kind of care that we want to receive personally um, in medical situations where we depend on care, we, you know, of, of from a hospital or from a doctor. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I do think that's a deeply important issue. Yeah, one more, and I want to, I've got a lot more to cover. Go ahead. No, you go. Uh, labor, the work, and play. Yeah, work, personal work, like what you do with your body during the week um, to earn money, basically is what I was talking about. And then recreation would just be what you do with your body um, that is unpaid, you know, things that you're doing. Yeah, so that so that what it's saying here is that it is possible. Um, I mean, seriously, this that's a great question, Gabe. This is the Sixth Commandment, we're saying, and prohibits what we would call loosely workaholism, right? Um, you know, we use that phrase, um, someone who works too hard. Um, and, and actually the sixth commandment would prohibit that, would say that you can't, you shouldn't, you can't do that. And you can't, you can't give yourself to work in such a way that's detrimental to your own body um, or to the health of those around you. If you're doing that, then you're actually failing to follow the sixth commandment. And of course, some of this is, you know, the context of the fourth commandment and resting one day out of seven, those kinds of things. But just generally, even during the other six days of the week. Yes. Um, I think it's interesting that it's in moderateness of meat and drink. I think that the divine wisdom gives us this kind of advice in terms of moderation in terms of yeah. matters pertaining to health. Right. Yeah, and, and did I did I feel like I'm breaking this the sixth commandment if I eat a burger or like because I drink coffee every day? I just <laughs> well, I, what I would say, James, is I would say, James, probably not. But I think you, we should all be asking ourselves those questions, um, and certainly our society encourages us to ask those questions in regard to things like our weight or something or, you know, whatever. But I think what the, the cis commandment is talking about is health, which is a broader category, um, I think, than just body image or, you know, um, physical attractiveness or whatever. Um, and I, I think, and I think we, need, we need to be asking those questions. Um, we shouldn't obsess over them, but we should ask them. Yeah. All right, let me, let me move through here just briefly. So, so some things to think about the Sixth Commandment. The Sixth Commandment locates God as the only one who has the power of life and death over the men and women who he's made in his own image. I think this is really important, and I'm not going to belabor this point, but the Sixth Commandment, um, John Frame says, the theological background of you shall not murder is that God is the Lord of life. 
i.e. not us. What the sixth commandment basically says is that life and death are God's business. He is the Lord of life and death, and we may not take life without his authorization. Rather, we respect life as an aspect of our reverence for God. So I do think that's important to think about, that, that this essentially is saying that you do not have authority even over your own body fully, um, much less the bodies of other people, um, which is something we should think carefully about um, when we think about um, the rhetoric of our day and age, um, that, that God possesses us, um, that we belong to Jesus, um, that, that we are not our own, but belong to someone else. And I think that, and that's not only true for us, but also for our neighbor, um, that God is the one who has authority over them, um, their bodies, their lives, um, their deaths. And uh, we, we, when we take the life of another person, we are, it is a profoundly idolatrous act. Um, it is setting ourselves up in the place of God. Um, and of course, not only doing that literally, but this is the problem with anger, um, for example, is that we, we stand in the place of God towards another person and do what only he can do, which is judge them um, in that way. Um, so I, I think that's really important for us to think about. So the, the sixth commandment um, um, prohibits us from taking revenge into our own hands even when we are harmed. Um, and this is something that's really important. Um, I say most of us are not tempted to violate the sixth commandment because we are sociopaths, right? I don't really think that that's a danger for any of us um, in this room probably. Um, um, but um, most of us are tempted to violate the sixth commandment because we feel as though someone has hurt us or has hurt someone we care about and we desire to punish them in return. And here's the, here's the kicker, friends. And we feel justified, right? We feel justified and we do it. That's something to think about carefully. I think, I think the sixth commandment is very often um, like we... We probably can't run through any scenarios where it feels good to us and justified to us to look at pornography, right? If, you know, if we're being honest. Um, but we can probably, this is where the sixth commandment gets tricky because there are situations where it's okay for us to be quote unquote violent, but it's really limited. It's really limited. And there will often be occasions where someone hurts us or someone hurts someone we care about deeply and our instinct will be to punish them in return, to get them back, to make them feel what we felt or what our kid felt or what our spouse felt. And what I want you to see is that that might feel good to you. You might feel justified in doing that, but what the Bible says is that you may not do that. Just wanna say that very bluntly, you may not. Um, I love the way Martin Luther summarizes this. He says, the meaning of this commandment then is that no one should harm another person for any evil deed, no matter how much that person deserves it. I mean, that says it's pretty clearly. Um, that, that's, and you know why? The why this is, because that way lies madness. Because this, this is literally a pagan way of living, right? The pagan way of living that's summarized in Genesis 4, um, where Lamech brags to his wives, right? Cain killed Abel, um, you know, um, because he was offended. But if any man so much as, you know, touches me, then I will, I will strike him down dead. Um, it, it's a cycle of violence that just perpetuates itself. And, and the, the story of the church is to break out of that. Yes. 
David? Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think. Well, I, th I think. I think. I think personally, especially thinking about who we are culturally um, in our church and just generally, we need to be very open to the Bible's critique of violence, because I think we are going to be more wired to justify violence and justify war and justify things, then, um, and we need to be careful to listen to how the Bible speaks about these things and allow it to really question us and our assumptions and our motives. I think that just war happens rarely, if you look at human history. <laughs> um, I would say that, you know, biblically speaking, um, ethically speaking. Um, and, I, and I think it's interesting, um, yeah, we just need to be very careful. And, and to be clear, just because America is involved in a war doesn't mean it's just. Like, I'd want to say that very clearly, right? Um, yeah, Kendall. Yeah. You probably should. No, and, and I think that plays itself out in personal ways, too. Um, let, me, let me talk about, real, real quick, the way in which the gospel um, gives us the possibility of creating new communities. I think this is really fascinating. Um, basically, friends, I want to argue there are two ways to live. There is the way of violence, and there is the way of peace. And the Bible opposes these kingdoms to one another. Um, Matthew 23, one of the most fascinating chapters in the Gospels, I think. Um, um, Jesus pronounces woes on the scribes and Pharisees. Um, this is under heading three. Um, he says, you know, if you build the tombs of prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if you, we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to be escaping sentenced to hell? He's saying you are in a system of violence. That's what he's saying. And you think you're not, but you are. And he's saying this is how it's going to be proved. Therefore, I will send you prophets and wise men and scribes. He's talking about the apostles there, right? After his ascension to heaven some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. I think when, one of the things that Jesus does in his crucifixion, this is so important to see, is he not only provides a way for our sins to be forgiven, he, he, he provides a way for human beings to live in community with one another, apart from violence, apart from 
the most powerful man in the community being the man who is willing to commit the most violent act, right? That's the way societies outside of the gospel are all structured, every one of them. Who has the most guns and who is willing to use them? That's who's in charge. Um, and I think it's important to say that the gospel provides, and, and you can, friends, you can extrapolate this down, not just nations, but you can think about churches that function this way. You can think about families that function this way, right? Um, you can think about workplaces that function this way. Like that is one way of keeping the peace, quote unquote, right? There's a certain kind of unity that exists. But the gospel is another way. It's another way. Think about um, Luke 23 as Jesus dies um, after he's told his disciples to put away the sword because he can call on legions of angels to destroy his enemies if he wishes to do so, but he refuses to do it. He said to his executioners, to the same men, the same men, the same men that he pronounces these woes against. As they are killing him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is profound. And you know what Stephen does? Just a few chapters later, the same thing in the same scenario. Prays for the forgiveness of his enemies. Like something changes in the death of Jesus. It becomes a different way of living. And it's profound in Acts 2. Um, Peter, who's preaching, says, to Jewish people in Jerusalem, right? Where, you know, 50 days before they killed Jesus. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's what he's calling them out for on the day of Pentecost, for the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They agree we are guilty of this sin that you just accused us of. And what does Peter say? He doesn't say do penance. He doesn't say now you are going to be punished by God in return for what you've done. He says repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Right, the man that you literally just crucified two months before. This is how you get out of it. Repent and be baptized in his name for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We can apply that, the gift, forgiveness of your sins broadly, but specifically in the context, he's talking about the forgiveness of crucifying Jesus. That's the sin that Peter is saying you can be baptized and receive forgiveness for. For the violent execution of the only truly innocent victim in the world's history. And, and it's just important to see how the church is founded on this. Like, this is who we are. This is fundamental to our identity, is that we are a people who do not take revenge on our enemies. And Jesus creates this possibility of communities that are ordered by something other than violence and power. It's, it's fascinating to think about, I think. And I think we should all be asking ourselves, what kinds of communities is my family, is my church, is my workplace, are the place, or my classroom, um, if I'm a teacher, um, are they communities that are organized around the kinds of 
leadership and, 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 and principles that Jesus talked about, or are they non-Christian? Are they organized around who is, and I'm not just talking about who is the one who is most literally willing to perpetuate you know, violence on someone, but who, who yells the most, right? Who is the most cruel that everybody's afraid of? Who, you know what I mean? Like, how do you exert influence and, and get other people to do what you want them to do? And the, the gospel says you can't be violent, physically or verbally. You can't. If you do so, you're betraying the way of Jesus. Um, so on the last page here, there's some other things. Um, I'd encourage you to read heading number four, which talks about the moral incoherence of the modern American state. Essentially, the argument there is that abortion is such a big deal that it renders uh, uh, every other thing that exists in our nation pretty incoherent morally, which I think is true. Um, so this is part of why I, I would say capital punishment is permissive in the Bible. I am profoundly skeptical whether the modern American state has the moral coherence necessary to practice capital punishment, given that it permits the legalized murder of children. So I just would say that. Like, in theory, capital punishment is fine, but, and, but abortion is such a massively significant deal um, in terms of moral um, coherence that, that the way in which it is perpetrated in the United States, I think sh we should question lots of things about the integrity of our nation's moral character. Um, and yes, friends, I'm talking about things like the troops and war and the American diplomacy and um, all sorts of things, right? Things like the Pledge of Allegiance, dare I say it. Um, we need to be very thoughtful about what is the actual character of the nation that we're a part of and how we identify it in terms of its Christian identity if we also at the same time say, yeah, and we've, we have this history for 50 years now where we have not only permitted the murder of children, but protected it legally. I think that's a problem. Um, and we should take it seriously when we think about our nation. Um, Um, so some diagnostic questions about sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, because this is something I really want us to think about. And, and I want to say clearly, I want to be a resource to you as your pastor, um, in helping you repent of particular sins, particularly like, I, th I think actually anger is, um, potentially one of the great unaddressed sins in the church. I say this at the bottom of the next to last page. Um, it's just sort of accepted, right? That, you know, some people just have a temper or whatever, you know? But man, if you think about your life and the ways that anger has been expressed towards you when you've received that and how much it's shaped you, you can really think about the damage that it does and the way that it affects people when they are afraid of someone and the words that they use, and the, the cruelty. So here's some diagnostic questions about sinful anger. How do you respond when someone makes a mistake or does something that inconveniences or frustrates you? Like, I don't think many of us are just running around being angry because we just hate everybody. But people do things that inconvenience us or frustrate us. How do we respond? 
when that happens. If it's a child, if it's a spouse, if it's a friend, if it's a fellow church member who makes a mistake or does something that you know, is inconvenient or frustrating, a coworker, a stranger, a customer service agent, a driver, a person on, I mean, I'm serious, like if the gospel does not impact how you talk to poor employees on the phone trying to pay their bills, and you're frustrated because whatever it is went wrong or is not happening. Like if, if the gospel doesn't impact how you talk to that person, friends, you're doing something wrong. You know? Because that's a human being made in the image of God. How do you respond when someone hurts you intentionally or slights you or overlooks you or betrays you, right? Where do you go? And this can be something you express outwardly in your language, in your words, or inwardly in your heart, right? Do you despise them? Do you condemn them? Do you have contempt for them? Because the, that's, that's the way of violence. That's the way of bloodshed. It's not the way of the cross. It's important for us to think about these things. What is our heart towards other people when they hurt us? If we despise them in our hearts... We're in danger, Jesus says. We are in danger. We are committing sin. Even if they genuinely hurt us. It does not, this, I mean, if you hear nothing else, hear that. Just because someone hurts you does not justify you treating them poorly. It just doesn't. When is the last time you got angry, right? Why did you get angry? Was it righteous anger? Was it really? If it was righteous anger, did you express it righteously? With care and concern for the other person? That's a high threshold, kind of like self-defense, right? Or just war, righteous anger. It exists, but it's a high threshold. It's hard to do well. Think about that. And here's a final question I think we should all reflect on. Does your spouse or do your children or your friends or your coworkers or your fellow church members or your neighbors, do they fear your anger? Are they afraid of what will happen if you get angry? Like that's a question that cuts to the heart of how we actually live in this way. Because if they do, I think we should ask ourselves questions about our heart and our sin. I think the way of the cross is not a way of people living in fear of how we might hurt them if they cross us. Right? That's a different way of living. It's not the way of the cross. Let's think carefully at these things. Let's stand and pray. We've got to close and get ready for worship. And I, I'm here. I would love to talk about these things. I know I've said some direct stuff. Talk to somebody if you're feeling convicted. Father, thank you for um, your word. Thank you for the sixth commandment. Thank you for the way of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that he forgives us our transgressions and our sins of violence against him and others, that we might be set free to forgive those who hurt us. May we walk in his way. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.